Hello and welcome to this episode of the Views from the Bath podcast with your three favourite PhD students, Ed, Edmund and David. And this week, another exciting guest in the form of Joe. Uh, so, Joe, who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name's Joe and I'm doing a PhD in chemistry at the University of Edinburgh into the sustainable recovery of metals. Very good. So... Joe, yeah, we we know you from probably from cycling in London as well. And Joe has the exciting privilege of being our our first male guest. So we'll do our normal our normal thing. So have we done anything exciting this week, David? Nothing too exciting. I gave a presentation to the collaboration on Monday during what we what we have is a, a tracker week, which essentially the tracker is one of the subdetectors in the CMS experiment, and because it's such a large component of it and there's so many people working on it they have these sort of probably about two or three times a year these tracker weeks where everyone comes together and gives presentations on what they've done so I had to give a presentation on, on my work and the, the work of my group which was of course very stressful no matter, no matter how many times I've done it before but it's good practice for giving presentations and communicating on what I've done in my work Science and communication Yeah exactly rest of the week I, I've been in Sun a few times weather's a lot better at the moment here in Geneva so you know to get out on the bike and sort of not have to worry about covering every single inch of my body in thermal clothing just keep warm Ed what have you been up to? I haven't done much since we recorded the last one on Saturday except I've been out running a few times in the somewhat more acceptable temperatures it's been up in the double digits of degrees around my house this week other than that started a few bits of programming coursework continued with a few bits of group project we finally got a cohesive project plan for our ai challenge project this term so we're doing a light sensor to to assess people's vitamin d and look at how that could be prototyped and integrated into a wider back-end infrastructure which I have the joy of writing. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, th- th- not, not too much to report this week. What have you been up to? No, it's also a pretty slim week for me. So Joe, what's, what's a week in the PhD in Edinburgh? This week's been a fairly busy week. I've made a few new compounds. Half of them don't do anything at all, which is a little bit demoralizing. But one of them seems to have some quite interesting behavior. And so I've spent most of the week throwing the kind of kitchen sink of analytical tools to try and understand how and why this compound is working and what sort of properties we have in terms of selectivity for metals and extraction of metals. I find that is often the way you end up just throwing any resource to give you as any data you can, as much data as you can get, and then then when you've made all that, you can start thinking about actually processing and understanding it. So, Joe, why don't you give some context as to what what exactly you do in your PhD, so that maybe people can understand what your week at a PhD actually involves. So, I work in metal recovery. So on the broader scale, we're working out how we can more efficiently recover metals from primary sources like uh, metal ores, but also, and particularly in the research group that I work in, work on how we can recover metals from waste streams and particularly how to waste, so waste electronic and electrical equipment. This involves sort of creating small molecules that work a bit like sort of pincers that you'd see at an arcade game and 
we aim to develop these pincers that will be selected for one metal at a time so we can separate out all of the different metals that are present in these waste streams and then recover them and recycle them for further use downstream it's a really nice project and it kind of you can really see the throughput you can see what we're wanting to where the aims are and and where you want to get to and definitely something's very useful applications you're looking probably specifically at that sort of consumer electronics and looking at, at that electronic waste are there any other applications to this sort of technique that are being you're investigating yeah so that's kind of my phd specifically is focused on one kind of smaller segment of all of the metals in the product table and i look at the f block elements down the bottom particularly at the moment i'm looking at lanthanide separation so that's everything from lanthanum across to lutetium. They, again, are found in consumer electronics. So neodymium and, and dysprosium are quite abundant in magnets that you get in phones and computers. But particularly important is that a lot of this chemistry holds true that as you move down into the actinide chemistry, and that's where we can start talking about things like nuclear waste separation because it's the same science and it's the same metals that we're seeing. But rather than looking at separating metals out of consumer waste, we can start to look at separating the longer half-life, much more difficult to treat metals from the bulk of nuclear waste. And then we can separate them out so that they can undergo kind of serial bombardment and or just bury them. But it would mean that you'd be burying a much smaller amount of waste. So that is maybe on the cards for later in the phd it's quite hard to get hold of the material <laughs> but yeah I, I really want to do it the chemistry especially down that end of the periodic table gets really funky and there's all sorts of stuff that you start being able to consider and it's nice it's nice working on big challenges with with large kind of real world implications so uh, as someone who's definitely not a chemist Working with radioactive materials, is there sort of special considerations that you have to look at for the chemistry, given that at some point they might decay into something completely different? And does that do the decay products have similar chemical characteristics, or do you have to sort of reconsider them? Yeah, no, so it, it would be a genuine consideration. If you're designing a molecule to extract something that's going to undergo decay, it almost certainly won't also extract the decay product. And there is a genuinely kind of big problem associated with designing chemicals that are existing in very radioactive environments, which is that this radioactive decay can smash your molecule to pieces, which is a, a pretty big deal on a kind of industrial scope and, and really sort of reprioritizes things in terms of uh, designing your extractant. There is no good way around radioactive decay destroying chemicals. Like, you can't really mitigate it. So you really just want to start looking at things that are fairly cheap, fairly easy to make, like nothing super, super specialist, because if you're going to lose sort of 10, 15, 20% of it every time you go to do one of these separations, you, you don't want to be chucking, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds away every time. So this is uh, an area of research that you, you were working on before your PhD, as, I, as I, I remember you, while you were at Imperial, working on this sort of stuff. Yeah, 
so I, I exist in a fairly incestuous academic family tree. So my master supervisor, who's now an academic at Imperial, did his PhD in the research group that I am now doing my PhD in. So it all looks slightly weirdly circular if you drew it out. But yeah, my, my master's was centered around uh, the separation of palladium from a electronic waste and that was particularly focusing on palladium platinum splits and so yeah i've now moved a few rows down to the heavier stuff to the cooler science it's one of those the interesting things with being the cdt that i am we get as kind of touch very much soft touch course on actinide chemistry which is for somebody who hasn't really done chemistry properly since a level is a bit of a whistle stop tour of stuff you really don't understand or definitely not enough information but it seems a very interesting area yeah i mean it's uh the actinides are a lot more interesting than the lanthanides the lanthanides are just very boring they have way too many electrons and so by the time you get to the outside the electrons are doing nothing interesting at all the actinides are very interesting but when you get taught them as a chemist you're, you're mainly told that you're not good enough at physics to really understand why these things are so interesting. And so we'll kind of gloss over the, but only to mention that they, they can do lots more interesting chemistry, potentially. Is there sort of a dumbed down version or brief description of one of these sort of fun things that they could do or, or just... So, so they have similar to transition metals. So the metals in the kind of bulk middle bit of the periodic table, they have a lot of oxidation states available to them. And so they can do these things called single electron reductions with really interesting sort of molecules. So the other half of the research group that I work in, a few of the really big research groups out in the States work on uranium catalysis work because uranium has incredible properties as a potential catalyst. You have to bully it into wanting to be a catalyst in the first place. But once you've done that work, you have so much effectively electronic muscle power in the atom that you can really, really start pushing around, especially small molecules, things like nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane, stuff like that. You can really start pushing the chemistry of these things that we consider not particularly interesting and not particularly reactive into these very reactive modes. And so you can start looking at things like nitrogen activation for potentially like room temperature pressure, ammonia synthesis, or carbon dioxide activation to turn it into fuels or plastic. So yeah, there's a huge amount of scope. And really people haven't looked at them so much because we just don't understand their chemistry particularly well. That's partly because they're a bugger to, you know, work with um and they're quite expensive but uh, it's quite a fun research field yeah so as you say you did a master's project in this area and you you've kind of gone to where your your master's supervisor did his phd i'm assuming the the process of going to that research group was was relatively simple for you enjoying your master's project and thinking where can i do this i could do this at imperial but i could also do this at edinburgh which has these opportunities how's it been starting in edinburgh has it been moving and and starting your phd yeah so i was quite keen to move i think also i spoke to quite a few academics and of older academics and they all said that if you can move try and move so so I was, I was quite excited from that point of view from a work perspective the work that i do here it's all the same and analytical techniques the same it's the same machines so the main machine that we use to measure metal content there are only about three manufacturers worldwide and it's exactly the same machine here as it was back at imperial and probably the same man comes into service every six months as well yeah i imagine so, you know, from that point of view, it's, it's pretty easy. 
it, there's always a, a fair amount of clunkiness when it comes to getting to know a new building and a new group. But, you know, that's been fun. Probably wouldn't advise, you know, moving to a new place where you don't know people in the middle of a pandemic where it's quite hard to get to know people. But it's been a lot easier given that I can work in the department. I was going to say this is, I know people starting new PhDs recently have really struggled with getting to know the research group because, again, you've if you've never been in an office with these people, I was lucky to spend six to nine months in an office with my research group and getting to know the people. So now if I have a problem, I know who to talk to. Mm. But there are people who are starting who, A, have not really got anybody to talk to. Nobody, like, over the coffee tells you, oh, you should look into this thing or, oh, you should start using this program or blah, 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 blah. Have you had a little bit of that being able to be in the lab? Yeah, so I've had plenty of that, and that's been really helpful. Uh, the guys that I work with are are so knowledgeable in the subject area. They've all worked in industry before, and you know they know a lot. So that they've been great. the The real difficulty has come when it's been, you know, especially as my work has sort of diverged away from traditional solvent extraction, metal recovery chemistry, into this slightly more. I guess exotic form and so you know people are like oh yeah why don't you go and talk to so and so who do kind of similar chemistry or know things about this and I'm like who they're like yeah yeah you know these people I was like I don't I don't even know where their office is uh, and I can't go to it even if I did <laughs> so stuff like that's a bit trickier but you know you can always email people you are doing some exciting and interesting stuff We don't want to quiz you too much on work because this is the end of the week. We're recording on a Friday evening. We want to give you a little bit of a break. So we also know you have other exciting interests. We know you through cycling, but you also probably a huge part of your life is photography. Would you would you say? And how's actually how's that been transitioning to Scotland? Doing photography in Scotland. I, I'm not doing any. It's the long and short of things. That, that it's a kind of combination of factors. So for reference, I used to work as a photographer. Uh, amongst the many things that I did in my photography, eventually I kind of settled in doing commercial studio work. And so I was doing advertising campaigns for companies who are mainly within the kind of cycling or sports sphere with a few kind of adventures outside of that. Obviously, working in a studio during the pandemic was not going to happen, especially early on. So that kind of took a premature end of things in London. And then since moving up here, it's just you know my client base was back in london a lot of the industry that i worked in is in london i don't have a studio up here which you know is a shame but i'm sure once it's possible to take photos of people again i will dig the camera out of its box yeah it's interesting that you managed to fit a kind of a we'd probably argue semi-professional photography career around university which is, which is an impressive feat, especially around such a technical course and the high-level work you did, especially around also being really involved within the union at the university as well. Yeah, so I think photography is quite a, a nice job in the sense that you can run it just about, uh, if you're willing to sacrifice a few hours of sleep, you can run it alongside a degree. You know, I worked as my own boss. I used to take client meetings in between lectures. So I'd like finish a lecture, run to the tube station or run on my bike, cycle somewhere into central London to a, you know, look on no hands or some other cafe, have a meeting for like an hour 
and get back before labs in the afternoon. Uh, and then you can organize your shoots around the kind of freer days and freer weeks or weekends. So in that sense, you know, it, it was possible and, you know, I quite like being busy. Uh, I probably just took, you know, people would offer things. I'll be like, yeah, I can do that. But no, it's fun. I think it's a really important thing if you work in kind of sciences or in particularly like heavy science institutions like Imperial is to have some sort of outlet that isn't science where you can you can switch on an entirely different part of your brain and and talk to people who don't know anything about f orbitals connects you back to the real world yeah yeah yeah. interesting so have you been able to keep yourself busy yeah up in Edinburgh and especially during the the pandemic yeah so I bought a bike before moving up. Effectively, just before I left London, I did a big piece of photography work and, and finally got paid for that. Uh, and rather than, you know, squirreling away somewhere, I just bought a gravel bike, which I'll be honest, is one of one of my better uh, spending decisions. It, it's got more use than my road bike has. I don't think my road bike has seen tarmac since November last year because it snows here a lot. It rains uh, here a lot. <laughs> the roads are industrial. Yeah, would be a good a good description. But the gravel is incredible. We're proper. There's proper kind of. I guess I don't know what you'd call it. Like American style gravel tracks here. You know, the big, wide, go on for miles and miles and miles, just through the rolling hills of like South Edinburgh or even up towards the Forth. So it's. Yeah, that's been as a way of getting out because there's not a lot else to do at the moment. I've seen plenty of countryside, you know, it's been good fun. That's interesting. So I would have thought, it's, if I'd asked you a year ago, do you think you'd have you'd have been considering buying a gravel bike? Because you're a bit of a traditionalist in terms of cycling. This is our, to- our flat top tube man, our rim brakes forever man. Yeah, okay, so I'm still not... You know, I get it now. The the braking power of disc brakes is very appropriate for a gravel bike. I still find them infuriating. You know, like one of my uh, pistons had a small piece of gravel in them and so wasn't firing as much as the other piston and so it's warped my one of my rotors. And that's, you know, it's stuff like that that you wouldn't get on a rim brake. And they're loud. They're so loud. You know, especially they grit the roads here from, from sort of November onwards. That effectively the, the road surface is no longer tarmac it's just a sort of a layer of salt and so as soon as there's any moisture that's going straight onto your pads and it sounds like a wailing banshee you know I, I think I gave a woman a heart attack as I was stopping by Tesco's today on my way home you go to break and she was like what is that so yeah I, I, but you know I, I get their place on a gravel bike so you're a Chris Froome, basically. You are in agreement with him a little bit. His his recent Yeah, yeah. I think it was it was nice to see him kind of giving an honest review, but I think I think he pretty obviously knew exactly what like was gonna happen. Because it was immediately he says something like that. He knows there's gonna be column inches, column feet written about him, and it's the best advertising he could have got. Because if he hadn't said anything contentious, that video would have gone nowhere, right? Yeah, I, and I, I won't claim to be through me here. I can't feel modulation differences that are affecting my times on descents, right? You know, my descending's all right. I mean, you're timing your descents? <laughs> not up here, you're not. No. It's, it's interesting. And yeah, I think it's 
the gravel biking idea is something if i was now recommending a first bike to a lot of people it would be the way i'd go nowadays just because of the ability to just get off the roads a lot which for given the way that some drivers treat you nowadays given there's just the issues we have it's maybe the best way to go a lot of the time i even think they make fantastic commuters yes absolutely you're loving wider tires for commuting right yeah it's hilarious like i you you just turn into a bit of a like pseudo yob on a bike again you know i feel like one of those teenagers that you see on a mountain bike yeah you can just hop up onto anything or down onto anything and like dart down paths and stuff like that are we going to be seeing you popping a wheelie through central edinburgh soon with with your mates and hoodies on i can't wheelies have, uh, have kind of evaded me I, I can one-handed track stand now. That's my, my, my real, like, gem for this year and shows how bored I've been. So we're not going to call you Joseph Briggs anytime soon? Yeah, probably not. And it's pretty embarrassing as well when, uh, you know, so up in the Pentlands, a lot of the descents are just full of very talented mountain bikers, of which I'm not including myself. And so you're kind of picking your way down something. And it's fine because, you know, I'll pick my way down the gravel bit and I'll get back to the road bit and I, you know. And then you drop them in the end and it'll be all right. Maybe on the uphill. Yeah. There's a lot of talented bike riders up here. I think that the thing with London is there's a lot of bike riders and a lot of people who um, look good but are not quite as good as they look. Whereas up here, it's flipped. Where a lot of people who look crap but are strong as anything in every condition you know yep. it's, it might be snowing and there's still some like 70 year old bloke out on a 20 year old road bike on 21 mil tires just like chugging away up a hill and you're like right okay he's probably going to live to 150 but yep. come back to cycling we want to do a little bit of a season review as a with you as a as a big cycling fan but first we want to hear through a little bit of the news from this week just to to keep things rolling to not make this the full cycling podcast uh so first thing i wanted to bring up was video i watched this week from probably i would argue one of my favorite kind of sort of inseminator of information attached to science in tom scott and a discussion he had about the difference in the kind of double standards in how we disclosures for advertisements with kind of youtube and that sort of creators versus tv i mean do you guys what's your guys opinion on tom scott videos and and him as a creator i i do love a tom scott video and i am today i'm channeling him with my red shirt but yeah i, I generally love his approach to a lot of his on-site videos about his interesting his i think it is amazing places one of one of his series that's really good fun to watch but this more recent video is a really in-depth look at how there are stark differences between traditional media such as tv and radio and new media which is more having to be regulated by the companies that they appear on and the fact that these are international companies operating in multiple different areas means they have many different stringent advertising stands that they have to uphold whereas in in the u.s a lot of people feel like they don't place stipulations on advertising because it's their their free speech and they don't want people telling them that they have to include something and they'll it's more that they're not allowed to 
bring in laws that impinge in people's free speech, although they are in some places, which he highlights in the video. Whereas uh, over in the UK, we've traditionally had a much more conservative approach with it, with, with the BBC never being allowed advertising on it, or, or even in sort of the 70s and 80s, not being allowed any music which mentioned, mentioned brand names, which I thought was quite interesting. So yeah, I, I think that this difference, I think, is more talking down traditional media, saying that they're probably not doing a good enough job of it, rather than saying that they're being too prescriptive in newer media formats, making the public realise that they are being advertised to and that the view that is being presented in the video isn't entirely the the result of the editorial freedom of the videographer. One of the most interesting parts, I thought, was sort of highlighting how much product placement goes on in things such as TV shows and in particular films and the sort of classic examples of that is James Bond where just about everything that he wears is from a company that's paid to have their name on film and sort of the shots of his watch, the car that he drives and so on are all very much deliberate choices so that the company that put their car there can get advertisement through the film and in fact one of the reasons that the new film No Time to Die has been delayed so much is now they're having to reshoot parts of the film so that they can update these product placements to the most recent models which I can only imagine is for cars or watches and other aspects of it and because that's never highlighted in the same way that on an Instagram post or a YouTube video they have to really publicise that this is a sponsored content or that this includes promoted content from a certain brand you don't become aware of it as much until someone tells you look at all this product placement and another example is like the Transformers movies are just completely full of every, everything that explodes has probably been put there and someone's been paid money to have their product there so yeah it really sort of opened my eyes as to how prevalent it is within the TV and film industry and yeah, I, I think it's very pertinent, and I think he had the right idea that those industries should be regulated more rather than giving the sort of social media platforms more freedom. I, I believe that everyone should actually be given a much stricter rule set in order to follow. Joe, as somebody in the creative industry, what's, what's your feeling on advertisement? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I normally worked on, on the adverts, but uh, and there's not a lot of subtle product placement you can do in a photo. No. But, uh. Especially not product photos. I'm with David here. I, I, I really don't think there's much drawback to increasing transparency about who's paying for what. I think the, you know, if you watch the video, the, the James Bond example is obviously less kind of subversive than stuff like the TV examples he gives. Because, you know, James Bond offers a, a lifestyle which everyone can see is a bit kind of ridiculous. I think it is that kind of case of and in the summary of the video that it's made that we should just know who's paying for this stuff especially now where where it you know advertisers are getting smarter and smarter about how they advertise their products you know it, it more and more and more you see these product placements moving away from the traditional kind of overly cliche look at how great this is to some really kind of dark arts 
ways of selling you things over the internet. And, uh, and I think that is going to be of growing importance as we move into the, into the future. And really, you look at the example and the, the kind of stance that's been taken in the UK and a lot of the content creators that, whose content we enjoy, and you, you never see it as a drawback, right? Yeah, you know, almost every content creator that is popular and that you kind of consume online is sponsored by someone at the moment. And I'm almost glad to know, one, that these companies are sponsoring them. And by declaring that actively, in some cases, it makes me almost more likely to to kind of uh, go towards those companies but but it, it it is a trust thing right i think there's now going to be a generational switch that goes from a generation where adverts were confined to ad breaks on tv shows in the uk to a generation who you who assumes that every time they see a product they are being advertised to and that if they are to trust anything there is going to need to be a, a level of transparency from the content creators about who's who's paying for which bits of of which content yeah and i think sort of two good examples that assume massive youtube channels that i think probably we all watch are first gcn and second the linus tech tips and the latter makes very clear which bits are sponsored and also make sure that any sponsors of the video essentially are not necessarily related to what the content of the video is unless it's specifically sponsored the whole video which means that you have i think a lot more trust in the sort of review style videos that he puts out knowing that yes they're sponsored but not by a company that has an, a vested interest in the review and he, it's sponsored so that he can make money it's not sponsored so that the review can be tarnished in any way and be changed so i think that enables you to have a bit more trust whereas on the other side or sort of a channel such as gcn i found it very difficult to know what they've paid for themselves and what they get given or what they get paid to show in their videos in terms of the bikes that they ride and all the other aspects of it to the point where i wouldn't really trust them with any recommendations for any kind of bikes or equipment because i don't know whether they're simply just being paid to be told that that's a good product or whether they actually believe it themselves yeah because they do put some videos up being like yes this is an ad this is a showcase of this specific thing but then every single piece of content that they put out where they're riding a bike that bike has usually been given to them by the company uh, and every single bit of exposure it gets and they say oh this is a really nice bike i love it uh, just maybe like an off-the-cuff comment in a video about something not related sort of like a race between the presenters or something like that that that's still something that that they might not be so obvious with declaring and i think joe's point about being happy with people who who are actually declaring this the these sponsorships I think we're seeing more and more the negative backlash that people get when they haven't declared these things and then they get punitive measures put on them because of it. People look to, they don't think, oh, poor reviewer or poor influencer. They look at it and go, oh, they've been lying to me about this thing. 
Uh, and so it's not even in the influencers' interests not to declare these things anymore, which I think may have been the case a few years back where they just wanted to get a bit of money and not have to put extra effort in to declare these things. Yeah. I'd argue further, actually, than that, that there, I think we're, because of changing consumer attitudes towards product placement, especially in online content, we've actually moved into a, a position where... It, there is more value to the company advertising in working with these less corporate-styled or much more transparent content creators. So take the Linus Tactics example, that there, there is more value to a company giving a product to that, especially if the company thinks that the product is genuinely good because consumers have a level of trust there. And so I imagine their statistics regarding conversion in terms of the number of people who click through and actually go on to buy the products are probably far better than similar statistics for, say, GCN. And I think that effect becomes even stronger when you move down to smaller creators. You know, I, I'm friends with uh, a handful of kind of smaller creators in the like YouTube space. And they are all, you know, incredibly upfront about who's paying them for what, who's giving them for what, you know, what they can't, can and can't say about the products that they've been given. And, you know, I think that results in a level of trust in their audience about what they are saying and, you know, if they are genuinely enjoying a product. And as a result, they've, you know, I've been told that the conversion rate that these sort of creators are getting is you know, astronomical in terms of the ratio of the number of people going on to buy the product versus the ratio of people seeing the, the content. So I think that's going to become a factor even in the advertiser's point of view, where it makes commercial sense to, to give money to creators who are more transparent, who do have a more trustworthy appearance and a, and a, greater, a better relationship with their audience in terms of their like, commercial interests. Yeah, I mean, the, an example of this coming out recently is one of the small creators that, that I find interesting is China Cycling, and he now works for Windspace, the brand, as they're working on their how they do their advertising. And he's said he looks for actually the smaller and even the more the most honest creators that he can find to get things out to review to because it's if you are seen to get a good review from say peak talk or from hambini however much you disagree with their approaches or, or people can and cast because they have they're probably inflammatory and things like this but if you get a good review from them you know they're being honest because they don't pull their punches and they they are pretty clear with how they do this my opinion on it is that I would kind of actually disagree with Tom Scott a little bit in that I think there should be the separation made between film and the YouTube and internet space because I think there is the difference in that film is... I don't think anybody's looking at a film or many people are looking at a film as a kind of form of review. And that's where I find issues. I, I have issues with product placement in film in that there are issues with creative control, which we've seen... Knives Out being a big example where you can tell who the bad people are because the bad people aren't allowed to use iPhones. And it's like that sort of issues with creative control are a bit of a problem and should be kind of we shouldn't get we should get rid of that in the future. But the other side of it being that that on the YouTube and the internet side, people are it's much more easy for people to come into something thinking there's gonna be information or a review and 
it's important that in those specific situations it's very clear what the funding format is yeah that's a great point anyway i think the other news article we wanted to look at this week was the new chances to become an astronaut within the european union i was going to say i was going to ask which what all of us wanted to be when we were five (laughs) what was your dream job ed i probably wouldn't say astronaut i was pretty obsessed with rocks from a young age so geologist from from the youngest age yeah dave perhaps rather conveniently i did genuinely want to be an astronaut when i was younger and i perhaps from quite early age also realized that the chances of actually being one was very small because you either had to be american or very lucky to be an astronaut or both or both instead i kind of transitioned to well i want to build rockets instead and that sort of passion for for space and for rockets is what led me to do physics as an undergraduate degree and although I'm doing particle physics now which isn't particularly related to astronomy or space it's still something that I'm very passionate in and I'm in fact part of the society that works on rocketry at Imperial so I'm sort of trying to keep an active interest in it but yeah would I would I want to be an astronaut still almost certainly if, if I was given the opportunity to go to space I would not turn it down well I think this is the opportunity Joe astronaut at five was this what you wanted to be yeah i was also astronaut at five i think it went astronaut at the five and then very quickly scientist as as a broader scope but i i still find space to be one of those fairly like just ridiculous things and the thought of of being an astronaut the, the most kind of enticing career path you could go down not that i think it's going to happen but if it could <laughs> Well, this is the thing. This is the opportunity. So the European Space Agency are looking for astronauts for the first time in about two decades, or a decade and a half, maybe, is the first time they're doing it. So they're looking for four to six permanent staff astronauts, and they're doing a new thing where they're looking for a pool of about 20 reserve astronauts who would be, they're kind of like army reservists. It's a bit of a weird concept where you would work for your company and then a company you work for will continue doing whatever you're doing and then you could be pulled in for certain specific missions the requirements they they put so they had a lovely live stream with some astronauts it was a good example of even these like european space agency most of them can't use zoom most of them is muted when they try and start talking they're like can you hear me can you hear me yeah this this happens to everybody even astronauts too but yeah so they're looking for People with a master's degree, basically from medicine to science, with three years of postgraduate work. They also either are looking for people who have degrees kind of in aeronautics or in piloting from, I think they're looking there from people from military side or people from, from that sort of stuff. Or And so the, the application is open on the 31st of March and closed on the 28th of May. Yeah, the other the sticking point for the rest of us is you need a good knowledge of a second language. So, David, get working on your second language. Duolingo is going to be absolutely vital to my chances. I think. Do you think they accept it as a uh, as a qualification? Well, we we can only hope, but I doubt it. It doesn't say a communicating language. It, we do you reckon we could get away with Python? This is a very good point. <laughs> I think they would enjoy your application if you said that. Uh, I, yeah, I think they'd find that quite funny. I speak Python fluently. 
yeah. although that would be a bold claim. Uh, yeah, so this it is it is interesting that this is this is the opportunity of a lifetime potentially for some people. Three of us don't really fit the requirements given the periods of postgraduate work, but I think David might be on the cusp if he if he wanted to go for it. It is maybe most people's kind of best opportunity of being a an astronaut. So this is why I think it's so exciting. We should put it out there, and there may be somebody listening who listens to that and goes that's me uh they do also say you have to be reasonably fit and their website has a, a whole list of other potential things that might happen to you uh, you have to be prepared to do all the tasks they want you to do and uh, understand that there are risks to space travel, space travel yeah i really enjoyed look at reading through the job description because it, it it read like many of the other job descriptions that you just sort of the standard sort of things like you will be expected to undertake extraneous t- tasks and then the like the next line is in outer space in a vacuum sort of thing and just like all of the normal points that you go through in a job description it has all of those just and then a few other ones like you're not allowed any psychiatric issues or anything like this and, and so there are there are a few more requirements than usual for for a job but it it reads much like any other job description which it felt a bit surreal just to read through this and thinking well, what i've looked at previous job descriptions going like oh i can do this i can do this i can do this you sort of go down the list and then it's are you a test pilot no no i am not a test pilot <laughs> So yeah, it's it's really great that they're hiring a new round of astronauts, and it's a shame that we're sort of two two or three years the the wrong side. So we might have to wait wait another decade to to get on board to, for our astronaut training. But I think it's really great, and it's something that we've discussed on a podcast a couple of weeks ago with the Axiom crew, where you've now got private um, and completely private space travel to the ISS. And we're, I think, just sort of on the cusp of this era where the opportunity to go to space will be far broader than it was maybe 20, 30 or 40 years ago. And it won't just be for the incredibly lucky and few where it's sort of people you can count on your hands to maybe people in the order of hundreds will be able to visit space at some point in their life. And yeah, we're still very young and we hopefully have a few more years and we can maybe have the opportunity in a decade or so time where it won't just be looking for four to six astronauts it will be a far larger pool which they'll draw from yeah i mean it is also worth noting at the same time that as well as ESA posting the astronaut jobs they also posted about 1500 other young graduate jobs people just out of a phd i had a read through the job descriptions in some of those and you can like keyword search it because there are a lot um and even those jobs if you're not kind of experienced enough or a suitable candidate for actually being an astronaut but still want to work in space look pretty exciting there's a lot of kind of very cool sounding job titles with very cool looking job descriptions and also, they're just a company that's hiring people at the moment. Like, yeah, which is a company with big engineering projects or big science projects that's hiring people at the moment is a bit like a unicorn on a riding a <laughs> rainbow. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's certainly something that I'd be interested in working on at some point. Is sort of, I've worked on one of the most powerful colliders in the world. Now, sending something to space would be a nice, other, nice other aspect to my CV. And, and yeah, I, I'm I'm still undecided as to, as 
I'm sure we all are, of what we want to do after we finish our PhDs. And sort of working in the aerospace or the space industry is certainly a possibility for me, definitely. Get back to cycling because we haven't talked about it for 15 minutes and therefore we must get back to cycling. So, season is starting. What classics are we looking forward to this year? All of them, because we all saw a few of them last year. Yeah. And uh, I think in particular for me, the ones that didn't happen last year. So Paris-Roubaix, it's probably the biggest race that got cancelled and then was never reorganised for any point in the year last year and is one of the most iconic cycling races in the entire calendar. In particular, there was going to be a women's race as well last year for the first time in the race's history. And of course, that unfortunately got cancelled too. So I think, yeah, for, for me watching both the men's and women's Paris-Roubaix this year is going to be quite a spectacle, especially as it's been two years now since the last one. So, who's our dark horse for the classics? Who's our dark horse that we don't expect to, that nobody's going to expect coming in to win some races? If Ghana turns up to any of them, apart from like hilly, hilly like Ardennes types, but even there I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't put it past him with the numbers he's putting out. But I, I think he could be a if he does go for it, and if they do want to risk him in the in the classics, then because I suppose that it's for Ineos, he's such a weapon that they don't want to risk injuring him. Going well, it's it's not just the team Ineos tactics. It's he doesn't want to injure himself before the Olympics this year. But it might be quite good for him doing the classics simply because if he did the Giro or the Tour that's a very heavy block just before the Olympics whereas the Spring Classics there's still a bit more separation between those and the Olympics which is obviously going to be one of his major targets for this year so that might be what pushes him towards doing the Classics mm. I couldn't see anybody beating him in Roubaix really if he, if he really wanted it well I mean I'll, I'll throw a name into the, the ring as he's now won what Junior Pan Roubaix twice and that potentially we might get Tom Pickcock's first out uh, run out to to big kids Harry Bay. They let him let him out on the proper couples this time round. Yeah, and we might get you know we we might maybe get the big Pidcock Van Art Vanderpool you know elbow off on the on the cobbles. Even a pole as well. I don't know whether he'll be recovered enough yet. We d- I think we just don't know enough with him being being back in that we'll see. But yeah, I could quite happily see this classic season being dominated by this those three going straight off the cyclocross season and going, right, we're going to keep knocking on for this one. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put any of the Ardennes classics past Van der Poel. No. I'd say with the exception of the steepest final like short kicks... I wouldn't put many of them past Van Art, and I have no idea where where Pidcock is going to come in terms of the the men's pack. Yeah, he his only weakness might be that he's not going to have as much of a team around him as as the uh, the other kids. That's true. Although then, well, I say also Van Art, his coach came out this week and said he's not really in the best, not really in race winning form. The guy came, what, second at Cyclocross Worlds? Yeah. And that, that was only due to, to a few mishaps, I, I, I think, really. I, I think it would have been a lot closer had he not punctured. 
And we saw Pidcock can go the distance, didn't we, at the World Champs last year? He was he was still up and with it, what, 230 kilometres in. So that was that's one of the concerns with young riders. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we can never discount just about any rider from the Koenig Quick step as well. I mean, whoever turns up on the day will almost certainly be make the final selection. And if not one, uh, multiple riders from that team will be in the final selection for just about every race. So... I think Philippe is also looking in good form this early on in the season. So it might be that he actually looks to some of the cobbled classics this year. Well, I was going to say that he looks very light. He looks Grand Tour built. Yeah, yeah. Where the, the very early season races, and obviously it's, it's very easy to overanalyze races at this end of the season. But he looks a very skinny build compared to perhaps a couple of seasons ago. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, given that he was going up Vontu with Bernal and Sosa, it shows that, yeah, you wouldn't see Van der Poel probably keeping up at that pace. So, no. yeah, I think you're right. Does that mean maybe he's targeting the Ardennes, if we're going to look at the classics, rather than the sort of heavy cobble ones? I, I wouldn't put him down as a favourite for Flanders or Roubaix or even... Yeah, none of the kind of super early Gent, Mervelgum, Kerner, Brussels, Kerner types. Uh, I'm with you on the, the, the quick step one, though, because they've just decided to buy sprinters. They're all quite good at cycling sprinters rather than you're yeah. kind of good at finishing sprinters. So they might be fun. It could be quite a power team. And it'll be interesting to see how the Ages are Citroen team, whatever they're now called, because mm. that's now a pretty much classics built team. It's sort of transitioned. So it will be, a, I think it will be an interesting rivalry because they are probably going to be the two big classics teams will be Quickstep and Ages are Citroen. And then then you'll have these outsides coming from Wat Van Aert, from Van der Poel, from Pidcock, from, from people like this. One of the big kind of questions that I guess remains to be answered this year and we didn't necessarily get it last year because we had so few classics is that people seem to be in a general level of agreement now that we're seeing a real changing of the guard in terms of the grand tour characters you know the the days of the the frooms and ports and nibelies quintana yeah seem to be past us and we're now into this very young very aggressive set of riders from a much more diverse kind of geographical background and we haven't necessarily seen that so much of that in the classics but then so maybe that's what we've got waiting for us this year is a kind of a gorge of young relatively unknown classics talent who who can really shake things up against the kind of older Van Avermaet um, Sagan I, I worry for those two because yeah Van Avermaet hasn't really won anything in, in a year and a half two years maybe now and Sagan I think we've not seen classics or actually full fit full racing Sagan in a while which is, he could come blasting back onto the classic scene and be his best self and win everything. But I don't expect it where I might have expected it two years ago. And I think with Sagan as well, that sort of period a couple of years ago where he was world champion and winning everything, the races that he didn't win were because everyone marked him out of essentially any chase group. He would be the one that was forced to chase any sort of solo break because no one else wanted to carry him to the line 
whereas maybe now because it's been a year or so where he hasn't been the one winning and hasn't been the one right at the front he might be given a little bit more freedom and less responsibility in the races from the other riders simply because he's not the one that is expected to win all of them now like there might be more pressure on your Van Aert's or your Van der Poel's to be the one that everyone thinks is going to win therefore has to do all the work in these chase groups if they're chasing down a breakaway so yeah it, it could be one that he sort of is, is a bit of a dark horse although he is one of the most successful riders of all time he, I think yeah it is definitely possible that he could come back and win a few more simply because there's less pressure and less of a focus on him yeah I was going to say that there is this other very hard to quantify factor which is that there will be a lot of neo pros in the peloton who haven't raced these iconic classics ever because they would have missed their first race last um, and then might not have raced them previously and not a lot of them have an equivalent junior race Paru Bay is quite unique in the fact that it does and so maybe one of the factors that plays into the hands of these kind of I guess the the old time classics riders is that they have been there, done that, and and in a new newer looking peloton with a lot less classic experience. Yeah, you know, maybe that will pay off, or maybe like the Grand Tours, we're just going to rip up the the rule book on how you ride Roubaix, how you ride Flanders, because these are generally quite prescribed even though they're very exciting races, you know, there are certain places where you attack. There are certain places where you don't attack, but you know, with all these new riders who are super fast on the flat, have incredible bike handling skills, can descend faster than the older riders. You know, maybe we're going to see an entirely new way of these races being won. much earlier attacking, much more aggressive kind of, breaking up into into small small groups and much less team controlled racing like i would be honestly quite surprised if we saw a return to a seven man strong quick step line drilling it on the front into crosswinds because i just don't think we're going to get back to that same point i think there are too many teams now in the pro peloton that have a reasonable amount of strength to to kind of dictate a race as much as quick step can you've still got characters like trentin around who who can really do damage for wherever they have ended up so i think we're gonna see a very scrappy version of the classics compared to previous years i'm very excited it's gonna be great the pro peloton this year no team looked weak it's weird it's the first time in, in my watching of cycling where I've looked at it and gone, wait a second, these teams all look pretty strong. It's not the case where you looked at it and went, oh, well, Team Sky are going to win the Grand Tours and, and Quickstep will win the Classics and that's how we go. It's it's not going to be like that anymore. Yeah. yeah. We mentioned it earlier, Women's Roubaix. We need to pick a winner. Women, first winner of Women's Roubaix. Boss. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be, right? I was going to say, always trust the boss. I don't know. Or, um... Cecile Utrup Lugulik. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I don't know. I'd love to see her win. I, I would love to see Mariana Voss win this, just because of all the things she's done for women's cycling. For, and she's probably one of the big reasons why we have the Women's World Tour or where it is, and why we have the races that, that we now have. It would be great to see her, because, let's be honest, she's getting towards the end of her career. It would be great to see her win win the inaugural edition of Repair Bay for Women 
it'll also be nice to see uh, Movi Star win something as well. That's true. <laughs> yeah, one name that comes from the sort of perhaps more cyclocross background, but it's also very much talented on the road is Lucinda Brand, who won the women's cyclocross world championships. Has had a great season in cyclocross. I think she definitely is a potential candidate for winning Roubaix, which has these sort of very sharp cobbles, is close to a cyclocross race in that sense. And we can never brood out Van Vluten, right? <sighs> Maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not convinced that it's her terrain. She's a light rider. I really think it's, it's more... I, I my kind of outside bet would be on a Chantal Black sort of yeah. character or so Van der Bregen as well perhaps yeah 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 if she's recovered a sort of Diger character she's yeah. still on the team well I think she's still there they've just told her to shut up but I don't know if she's back on a bike after having her like leg gouged by a piece yeah. of road furniture yeah I mean even a little bit of an out if it goes down to a nice small group and she's in it Lizzie Digan maybe I think it's a bit of a well, I mean if it's raining if the weather is truly English then the two of them might have a have more of a chance although the the Dutch riders are pretty well versed in, in that sort they of they like the rain too I think one thing that Joe you talked about earlier and the fact that there's all these young riders that don't know how to ride the classics that's emphasised even more with the fact that there's never been a women's Roubaix so therefore none of these riders will have raced this course these cobbles and this sort of type of racing which means that there's going to be a lot of learning out on the road <laughs> there's going to be a lot of learning but it could also mean that someone attacks at 100k to go and stays away because they know how to ride the cobbles and it just means that they don't get caught and the peloton doesn't understand how to chase between the sectors or on the sectors of cobbles so yeah, it, it, I think it could be it's anyone's guess who's going to win because, yeah, it's never happened before. There's never been a women's Roubaix. Well, this is why we ask. There's no form book, so we're going to ask the question. Well, because the thing that I was going to say is, I guess one of the things that you can reasonably say about women's cycling in general is that it is slightly more individuals focused. You know, like as an individual, you can just take a race away from the rest of the bunch. And we've seen that time and time again, that it, it will really come down to the same few names. And it's a lot less team controlled than perhaps men's racing is at the moment. But one of the big interesting factors when it comes to the classics is these are particularly exposed roads. You know, these are big, crosswindy, flat roads where you, where you do take a huge amount of strength from riding in your team, especially over the longer distances of a race like Roubaix. So it will be really interesting to see where that ends up falling in terms of this balance between, a, a, especially early, the like first 100k of Bay is normally just people sitting in with their teams. Yeah. Are we still going to see that sort of racing when the women come to race the course? Or is it literally just going to shatter into pieces from the first sector? We're not going to process into Arenberg. No, I, I, I would be surprised if the, if the majority of the peloton was together in, by the time they got to Arenberg for the women's race. I agree. Well, we've spent a lot of time on the spring, so Grand Tours, what are we thinking? I think I'm going to predict Ineos win one Grand Tour this year. I'm going to go for two. I'm going to say two. 
Yeah, I reckon Yates will get the Volta and G will get the tour. And Bernal will crash and burn at the Giro. Interesting. Uh, Bernal was the one I was going to pick for the Giro, to be honest. <laughs> and the other's probably not. So I, I, I'm still going to stick with the guy that said that G will never win a race again after he won the tour. And it's, it's held true so far. And I, I think it's probably going to continue for a bit longer, to be honest. He, he is one of those old guard, as Joe mentioned. And I think that, yeah, the, the racing, as we saw at the tour last year, has changed so much. Yeah, and there's so many strong young riders now that believe that they can win and also have that belief that even if their team isn't strong enough to pull them up all the climbs, that if, as long as they're still there at the end of these races, they can get those seconds and they can, in the end, and they have that belief to win. So I think that it's gonna, definitely going to be a far younger set of three winners this year as it was last year than we have seen in sort of the previous five years or ten years I think we might see though a similar sort of shake up to last year where we're not the, the, the team leaders aren't going to be the race winners necessarily you know I, you look at especially you look at a team like Jumbo Visma and I, I can't help but find myself thinking that we might get in a similar position where Roglic comes into the races team leader, which he should. He's you know one of the strongest riders in the pro peloton. He was very unlucky to lose that tour, but I can't help put it past seeing a character like Sepp Kuss come and really take a race over if someone like Roglic starts to flounder or crashes or you know he looked so incredible, especially at the Dauphiné. The, the stages that he won in that, he, he looked like the easiest climber on the mountain. And similarly speaking, God knows whether Timo Pino is going to try and come in as a GC rider again. I imagine he will because the French teams don't seem to learn from their mistakes. I thought he was planning to transition to just go for stages this year, but... Well, hopefully. And I would like to see him, you know, win that stuff. But someone like David Godot... Yes. Again, these incredible timing talents that we've now seen can also put in a reasonable stint on the time trial bike. Or even as a as a longer shot, Van Aert to win the tour as a kind of ridiculous possibility. I don't think it'll happen this year, but I think he would have to do a, di- a different approach to the season, but I could see it happening in a few years. Well, it's, it's one of the least mountainous Tour de France's, I think, uh, this year. Sure. And well, I think as well. I mean, Vanderpool is is going to the tour so that he could be in yellow. I think for the first week, I think that's his aim. Is like he knows he's not going to make it over the mountains, and he's probably going to pull out so he can focus on the Olympics. But there, there are a couple of sort of almost classics like stages at the start of the tour where it could be decided by sort of echelons and massive sort of crosswind stages, where your sort of classics guys like Bernard and Vanderpool might be the ones that get yellow and then take it through to maybe the start of the mountains and we'll probably defend it all the way there and that, that'll be their aim that they, they get to ride in yellow for a week of the tour which is a massive achievement and yeah someone like Van Aert might stay on and try and keep it all the way because we saw him go up these mountains yeah, yeah. I, I, I really think that the tour this year is right for a non-traditional GC winner to just come in and, and take it over if if Ineos wanted to give him the team, Ghana could win this year's tour. We saw him go over mountains. Yeah, it's true. He could. Even Rohan Dennis. 
maybe. Yeah, Rowan Dennis in the Giro, right? He climbed as well as Gagan in in most of those stages, and he really put damage into two, you know, top form Sunweb riders. Back to Roglic, I don't see him winning just because I think psychologically that loss last year will be it'll either be the making or the breaking of him maybe but you know he he then pulled out a, a reasonable Vuelta I, I don't see, see Pogaccio winning another tour or a Giro or a Vuelta I, I don't think he's going to win another I think he won that race in the way that Bernal won the tour in the sense that no one was looking at him and then he won yeah and I think even though I've I've said before I don't think Bernal would have won the tour if the landslide had not happened Ooh. hot take I, I thoroughly agree with you there Edmund I've not a fan and I don't think he had to, had the legs but there we go well thank you very much for coming along to chat Joe it has been a pleasure uh, well, I would also say, like to say thank you to everybody for listening and have a lovely good evening. Good night. Good night.